thank you for being here again for the next episode of our Friday weekly podcast, The Class Action Weekly Wire. I'm Jen Riley, partner at Dwayne Morris, and joining me today is Tyler Zemeck. Thank you for being on the podcast, Tyler. Thank you, Jen. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So today we wanted to discuss some trends and important developments in Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act, or WARN, class action litigation. So class actions brought under the WARN Act remain a key area of focus for skilled plaintiffs class action lawyers. Uh, in recent years, dozens of COVID-19 related lawsuits have been filed under the WARN Act, as well as under state counterparts to the WARN Act, and new class actions are being filed almost daily. The mass layoffs arose in the aftermath of the pandemic and related to quarantines and those spawned countless of Warren Act class actions resulting in courts having issued several significant decisions um, in that area in COVID-19 related Warren Act cases, including rulings that can shape the contours of future Warren Act um, class action litigation beyond the pandemic um, and for years to come. Tyler, can you explain to our listeners some of the requirements for employers under the Warren Act? Sure. Absolutely. So the WARN Act requires employers to give written notice to affected employees at least 60 days before conducting a plant closing or mass layoff at a single site of employment. Now, as you'd expect, the statute has very specific definitions of each of those terms. A plant closing is the permanent or temporary shutdown of a single site of employment or one or more operating units within that site of employment where the shutdown results in an employment loss during any 30-day period for at least 50 full-time employees. A mass layoff is a reduction in force, sometimes called a RIF, that is not a plant closing and results in an employment loss at a single site of employment during any 30-day period for either A, at least 50 full-time employees who comprise at least 33% of the employee population, or B, 500 or more full-time employees. The WARN Act regulations require aggregation of employment losses at a single site of employment during a rolling 90-day period, which in essence extends the statute's 30-day period to 90 days. And the statute has teeth in the sense that covered employers that do not satisfy the statute's requirements or qualify for an exemption can be liable to affected employees for back pay and benefits. Thanks so much, Tyler, for that great overview. Um, in terms of class action litigation relating to the WARN Act, how often do courts or are courts certifying these types of cases? In short, very, very often. Um, in the year 2022, plaintiff's lawyers actually won every single motion for class certification that was filed in a WARN Act case pending in federal court. And the jurisdictions where those rulings were issued were clustered in the third, fourth, and 11th circuits. Wow, that's a, a pretty good success rate. Uh, can you tell our listeners about some of the most significant rulings in the Warren class action space? Sure. So one case from 2022 involving Rule 23 in the context of a Warren Act class action is Jones versus Scribe Opco. The plaintiff in that case alleged that the defendant, his former employer, violated the WARN Act when he and other employees were furloughed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The plaintiff claimed that 
while the employer gave written notice in advance of the initial furlough, the employer failed to provide a follow-up notice once it became reasonably foreseeable that the furlough slash layoff would exceed six months. And the court granted the plaintiff's motion for class certification, um, finding that all the requirements in Rule 23 were satisfied. The court determined that the putative class of 344 people met the numerosity requirement. The court further ruled that although the determination of each class member's damages would be individualized based on their rate of pay and the benefits to which they were entitled, all of the class members' claims involved the same legal questions. Um, specifically, the court ruled that common questions underlying the elements of the Warren Act claim and the defendant's affirmative defenses were common and predominated over any individual issues. And finally, the court concluded that the plaintiff met the superiority requirement of Rule 23 because of the small individual values of the respective claims for class members and the fact that it would be difficult to have potentially dozens of individual warrant actions filed by um, affected employees. Thanks, Tyler. So one question that intrigues me in terms of Warren Act litigation is this question of what is the single site of employment and how does that bear when employees um, are working from home? So as the pandemic has spurred um, this trend and this great rise of remote work, um, how does that single site of employment test um, apply? Do you have any examples of rulings that address that question? Yes, absolutely. So a um, case that got a lot of attention in the legal media is um, Pyron versus General Dynamics, which was issued in 2022. And it's a case in which the court analyzed what constitutes a, quote, single site of employment under the Warren Act for employees who work remotely. And the court analyzed that statutory term in the context of a motion for class certification filed by the plaintiffs under Rule 23b3. So in the Pyron case, the proposed class consisted of remote employees who had worked under the employer's flexible work location policy. Under that policy, employees could work from a company-provided setting like an office or from an alternative setting like their homes. And employees frequently move between those two locations to conduct their work duties depending on their schedules and where they preferred to be that day. When the defendant laid off employees, many of whom fell into that group who were subject to the policy, the affected workers filed a Warren Act class action asserting that they were not given the 60 days required notice for mass layoffs occurring at a single site of employment. The defendant opposed class certification, arguing that the class could not show that questions of law or fact for the class predominate over the same questions for the individual plaintiffs. Specifically, the defendant argued that plaintiffs did not work at a single site of employment and thus could not trigger the Warren Act's notice requirements for mass layoffs. Instead, the court would have to look at each class member's individual situation to determine his or her place of employment. For example, each class member's, um, you'd have to look at how often they work in the office versus at home or some other location. The court rejected the defendant's predominance argument, ruling that the class could be certified under Rule 23. So in 
its ruling, the court emphasized that the remote work policy applied to all of these employees, and that policy would guide the determination of what constitutes the site of employment for each employee, meaning the critical inquiry, the application of the remote work policy to the work arrangements would be common to all potential class members, even if some class members utilize that policy a little bit differently. So this case illustrates one potential pitfall that can arise with the shift from an office workforce to a remote or hybrid workforce. And that pitfall is the possibility of lay layoffs um, to a remote or hybrid workforce triggering Warren Act liability. And it also highlights um, that use of a common remote work policy for many workers can potentially render a class of workers sufficiently similar for purposes of Rule 23 class actions. Very interesting ruling. How about any issues or rulings on exemptions provided to employers under the WARN Act? Sure, so this is uh, the last case I'll go over um, during today's video blog, and it's a significant one issued by the Fifth Circuit where the court um, provided guidance regarding the quote, natural disaster exception to the WARN Act. And the case was ESIM versus US Well Services in which the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals held that the COVID-19 pandemic does not qualify as a natural disaster under the Warren Act's natural disaster exception. So as background, in that case, the plaintiffs filed a Warren Act class action claiming that the defendant terminated their employment without the 60-day notice required by the Warren Act. The defendant, U.S. Well, argued that the termination was caused by COVID-19 and therefore notice of 60 days um, in advance of the layoff of 60 days was not required due to the Warren Act's natural disaster exception. And both the plaintiff and defendant in the trial court moved for summary judgment on that issue regarding the exception. The district court denied both motions. In doing so, um, the trial court concluded that COVID-19 was a natural disaster because people did not start or consciously spread it, and it was a disaster based on how many people were killed or infected. The um, trial court nonetheless denied the defendant's motion for summary judgment because the exception in the Warren Act uses a but-for causation standard, and the court found that the record did not show that COVID-19 was the but-for cause of the layoffs, meaning other factors could have been in play as for what led to the layoffs. On appeal, the Fifth Circuit basically disagreed with the trial court's entire order. The Fifth Circuit held that COVID-19 does not qualify as a natural disaster. And in doing so, the appellate court narrowly construed the statutory language, which limits examples of natural disasters to flood, earthquake, or drought, and other hydrological, geological, and meteorological, that's a tough one, events. The Fifth Circuit also examined um, whether the phrase due to in the natural disaster exception requires but for or proximate causation. And unlike the trial court, the Fifth Circuit determined that the natural disaster exception incorporates proximate causation, not but for causation. Great insights and analysis, Tyler. Thank you so much.
Um, I know that these are only some of the cases that had very interesting rulings in WARN Act class actions over the past year. The remainder of 2023 is sure to give us some more insights and more examples of the way that class actions are continuing to, to evolve in this space. Um, so that brings us to our conclusion. Um, thanks to our listeners for joining us today, and we'll see you next week on the Class Action Weekly Wire.